The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. I'm Dan Roth, LinkedIn's editor-in-chief, and I have this video series called This Is Working, where we sit down with leaders to talk about the things they have learned in their career, how they manage themselves, what they do to stay productive, and what they've succeeded with. And then after each interview is done, my colleague Nina Melendez and I sit down in the studio and talk about what we've learned from those interviews. And here's Nina now. Hi, Nina. Hey, Dan. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, although it's starting to get to be allergy season. Oh, yeah. What, what's your allergy? Being outside. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever is outside is yeah. what I'm allergic to. So are you staying in? I am spending a lot more time inside, which has been actually sort of handy because my kids they love watching TV. So yeah. now I have an excuse to sit there with them on the couch watching stuff. What do you guys watch? My youngest has gotten very into The Simpsons. And oh, I so love the Simpsons. it's so good. And now yeah. we're watching, we're sort of rewatching. I mean, for me, it's rewatching for him, it's watching for the first time. Are you watching old episodes or are yeah. you watching new ones? No, we have like very specific seasons we're watching. Nice. Yeah. And do the jokes still hold? The jokes, what's really interesting is that some of the jokes are, first of all, there are some jokes that hold and that he laughs at, but there are other ones that are references that he would have no idea yeah. what they're referencing. Right. The Simpsons writers were referencing stuff from their childhood. Right. And so it's like generationally now, it would be like someone, when I was a kid, making jokes about the 1920s. So it's really ancient to him. I remember when The Simpsons was so, like, risque. Right. You know? Totally. The it, whole, like, eat my shorts thing, <laughs> you know? Like, I don't think you can say that on, on a podcast, Nina. Oops, we're going to have banned. to bleep that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Um, well, it's funny that you're actually talking about older episodes of stuff because we're going to revisit an older episode of This Is Working today. That conversation you had with Total Wolf, we are going to talk about that. It was such a great conversation, and he's such a fascinating man. So I thought we should um, dig into that one. Awesome. Are you a Formula One fan? I'm not a fan, but I do remember when I lived in France, like F1 was all the rage. It's a wild thing to get into because it's not like you can ever – I feel like if you're into basketball or soccer, like you can go out and, and play do it. that. Play yeah. it. So I don't know. I've never been into Formula One. And until that Netflix series started and then all of my friends were suddenly talking about Formula One. Mm -hmm. And then Toto Wolf's people came to us and said, he's going to be in New York and would you want to sit down with him? So we should probably explain who he is. Yeah. He's an Austrian billionaire. He's a motorsport executive, investor, and he used to race as well. He holds a 33% stake in the Mercedes-AMG Petronas F1 team. And Toto is not just a super successful billionaire, but he's someone who had to kind of grow into this role. He had a pretty traumatic childhood, a real lack of resources. His dad died when he was young. And he you talked about his driving career. It makes it sound like he was a successful driver. He really wasn't at all. Yeah. He um, actually visited Harvard to teach a case study to MBA students because of just his leadership style, which uh, has, has worked so well. Um, and it was a discussion on high-performance leadership and organizational culture. So he really knows what he's talking about. It was the Harvard Business Review case study of Toto that really made me want to sit down with this guy. I mean, yeah. how he manages 
his F1 team, why the CEO of F1 calls him the best principal in the business. I went from getting into the sport through the business of the sport. Mm. And now I find it totally fascinating. And to Mercedes team is someone I'm definitely cheering for. When we talk about companies or teams, it's a bit of a hybrid word because what is it actually? It's the sum of the people that work together. What I do and what I love to do is trying to understand the complexities of the characters and the personalities. We all have dreams and hopes, anxieties, and um, and I think I'd like to understand what that is. What is what is happening to the people that either re report directly to me or the, to, to the wider organization? I love to walk around and hear the opinions on the on the machine shop floor. I like to to engage with areas um, in, on the engineering side, and in, in that respect, we are trying to achieve a high performance environment with a huge workload, but at the same time, um, safe place extracting. Um, high performance as, a, as an entity, whether it's a sports team or a company, is not always about working 80 hours a week and being under constant pressure. It also means that you need to be able to depressurize, um, to energize yourself and be motivated. So balancing um, those sides is, is crucially important. Finding out what drives people. And it's not always the trivial things like money or power. It might be internal or external recognition, having more time with the family, being able to spend time on your hobby or the social interactions in the team. So it's not one dimensional. We are complex personalities. All of us are different, contrary to what leaders normally assume. Everybody thinks like me. Um, and that is, it, it is what keeps me curious. Hmm. And also, it's, it's, it's not a static situation. We, we may have times during the season where it's very intense, where people are borderline um, burning out. But we're trying to anticipate that and, and make sure that this comes in cycles and people are actually able to regenerate. This idea of walking around and listening, it really reminds me of what Oscar Munoz, the former CEO of United, talked about, the importance of just walking through the airplane or walking through the baggage uh, areas to be able to listen to what people's issues were. Now, Oscar was using that to be able to understand what problems United faced. What Toto was doing is a little bit different. And I love this idea of you listen to people and you talk to them because you want to understand what motivates them. Because at some point, you get to a point in your company, or in this case, his, his team, where you're going to have to push people harder than they want to be pushed. Or there's going to be so much pressure going on that people are going to be melting down. You either have to know how to get them to the next level or help them kind of survive this pressure cooker environment that they're in. And I think that as a leader, it is easier. You know, he talks about, what does he say? Like, it's not a one size fits all. It's not one dimensional. This idea that everybody thinks like me. Yeah. You know, that's a, that's a totally false idea. And I think that as a leader... It's certainly a shortcut. You're like, I know what motivates people. This is what motivates me. I'm sure it motivates everyone else. Um, and what Toto is saying is like, that's totally wrong. You have to know what it is and then you've got to apply. So it takes the hard work of getting to know people so that you can then motivate each of them individually. Yeah, I thought it was interesting when he said a team is a sum of all its parts. So it's like, how do you motivate each, each individual person knowing that no one person is bigger or greater than the rest of the team? 
Well, there's something that he talks about in this interview that I've never forgotten, Mm -hmm. which is he doesn't have to know what motivates them. He has to make sure that they know what motivates themselves. Interesting. And one of the things he talks about, which blew me away, was that he tells everyone in the company that they should understand who their rival is at another one of the teams. And not just like who their rival is in sort of a general idea. You have to know who that person exactly is. It's Fred Smith on this other team who does the exact same work I do. And then you're supposed to take a picture of that person and put it on your computer. Yeah. And then throughout the day, you're looking at this person saying, if I don't do my work harder, that person's going to beat me. Or here's what I need to do to beat that person. Yeah. It's crazy. He has it on his computer. Yeah. He has three people. He wouldn't tell us who they were, though. He wouldn't, know. You almost asked. He preempted. He said, I'm not going to show who they are. And you're like, I was going to ask. We're going to find out. <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's the new challenge. But that is such a great motivating factor. Because sometimes I find myself, when I get discouraged about like where I'm going or what I'm doing, I think of someone who is doing what I want to do. And that actually helps motivate me. I wouldn't, I don't know if I would consider this person like my competitor, but knowing that I'm a little bit in competition with this person kind of helps spur me to, you know, pick myself up and keep going. The minute I start feeling discouraged, like, oh, I'm not even going to try. Yeah. No, I'm going to do it. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's pretty handy to have that idea of like, who is that person? After this interview, I was like, I'm going to start doing that. I I didn't do it. Yeah. But I like the idea of what would it be like? You know, I've worked at places before where I have definitely had rivals. And I think that it was, and we've talked about this before, it was probably very one-sided. I think I felt like I was in competition with someone and they did not feel that way at all. You you said they didn't know I existed. (laughs) Exactly. So that was, you know, but it helped me. It really did help me a lot. There's one thing about having a rival and then there's a whole nother level. Like, you know, the the singer Iggy Pop, the founder of the Stooges, the the leader of the Stooges. There's a story about him that he hated broccoli so much Mm. that he would insist on having a bowl of broccoli in his dressing room before any show so that he could get angry at the broccoli and then throw it away, I guess, which gave him the energy he needed to go out and perform one of his incredible shows. Yeah. So that feels like maybe taking it too far. You know what that actually is tangential to is this idea of doing the things that frighten you on a somewhat daily basis. Yeah, but wouldn't this be like confronting the people who frighten you? Like... This is, or confronting the thing that frightens you. Yeah. And if you do it enough, then it no longer frightens you. But I think what Toto would say mm-hmm. is that you want to be frightened. You don't want to ever get to that point where you are not feeling that. I mean, he wants you feeling like your rival is there outperforming you all the time. If you yeah. ever get to a point where you're like, I'm not worried about this person so anymore. So you know what you do? You just change that? the picture. You find a new rival. You find a new rival. Yeah. To I keep like yourself that. motivated. All right. You know, you mentioned this sort of pressure cooker environment that the F1 team has to be under or is under constantly. And a couple of years ago, one of the principals, um, Franz Toast, had said that, you know, there were people that were complaining that 23 races were happening. And he said, look, if you don't like these many races, then people should just go. Meaning if the employees weren't happy, they should just go. And there's this kind of like, hey, if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen type of mentality sometimes that leaders have. I know Elon Musk has has talked about it at Twitter. What do you think about that as a motivating factor? I'm not sure if it's a motivating factor, but I do think it's you kind of got to know what job it is you're signing up for. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is how F1 works is you are moving cities, you're breaking down, you're setting up, you're doing the race, you're flying somewhere else, you're doing it all over again. And So you kind of have to know that's what you're signing up for. And I feel like 
what Franz is saying is kind of right. I mean, you can't go into a job and say like, well, this job's not great. Can you change the job because it's not great for who I am? It's right. Like, hey, this is that's the work. Right. Don't right. you think? No, for sure. Like, don't become a sailor man or woman if you get seasick. Right. Don't suddenly now ask that the boat not leave the harbor. Yeah, I'm not super into water. Is it cool if we just stay docked? Yeah. <laughs> I it's actually not good for don't my like health. fish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, you know, at some point you'd be like, you're on a boat. Right. Yeah. You're in the wrong profession. Exactly. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, more on my conversation with Toto Wolf. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back. So, Dan, you had talked to Toto about the hybrid work format, you know, whether going back into the office or out of office. And again, this interview happened about a year ago. Yeah. So sort of out of the pandemic, but still kind of in it in a way. Um, let's let's hear what he had to say. Obviously, we are competing for the best talent, and you need to figure out if you can what is the framework and the environment that we need to create for talent to grow, to prosper, and and again, this is very individual, and I think for every department it is different, and we are trying to empower our heads of department to take decisions for their stuff um, based on the individual and and their needs. Obviously, we can do that with an organization of 2,000 people much easier than a multinational global company. But this is really the looking at the individual and trying to find out what is the optimum framework to perform. On the machine shop floor, you can't work from home, and you need to respect that um, these people come into the office every day. But then there is areas like graphic design or certain marketing areas that can work from home. And for them, it might be easier and it will create more more output. But we're learning, we're learning on the job at the moment. And we're trying to understand how we can extract most performance. And one, if I were to summarize it in one of my key learnings is that we're social animals. And when I go back to the office, uh, 
I I enjoy interacting. I enjoy being in the in the kitchen and and having a chat with people that I would normally not chat. Uh, have discussions that become creative and interesting without having been on the agenda. So I think we will find out that this social component of sharing an office is quite important, quite a big part of our well-being, rather than being um, secluded in your own four walls. I think in this day and age, if you want to retain the best people or attract talent, uh, you need to offer some kind of um, hybrid working environment. But because we are a uh, not only creative, but also a manufacturing company, and we go racing, for most of the department, it's simply not possible to work from home. And I see that um, that all of us that are in the office or work every day, it, it is quite enjoyable to interact. And I think it will... It, it's going to come like it needs to come. It's all going to fall into place. And I, I think rather than us designing a hybrid working model um, or, or being adamant of having everybody back in the office, in a year or two years, we will see where that has led us, whether our performance has suffered. Um, we will be able to attribute KPIs to entities that have allowed uh, um, hybrid working or five days a week, three days a week, um, or, and others that haven't done that. But my personal feeling is we are humans, and uh, I think it's going to go in a way that we will be working in the offices, whether it's three days or four days or five days, I don't know. We are learning. Dan, when it comes to this sort of hybrid debate, because people are still sort of having it, what is it that leaders are failing to understand? I'm consistently shocked when I listen to CEOs of large companies, and you're really hearing this on Wall Street right now, where yeah. they're, and the, Jamie Dimon is sort of leading the way on this, of everyone back to work immediately, and it feels like this massive disconnect between what workers want or how they stay. I mean, it goes back to that topic we were just discussing of what can you motivate people within a certain within certain guardrails? We know this from the data. The people like hybrid. Study after study is yeah. showing that they that this need this ability to get rid of the commute, to be able to deal with stuff in your personal life, but to also have the ability to be in the office and as as Toto says, to be human and be social and yeah. see your colleagues and learn from each other. Like if we can get the best of both of those worlds, we're in great shape. Yeah. But I think that for senior leaders, you know, they are looking around wondering what are what are my people doing all day? And as much as we talk about you know, clocking in and clocking out and then you're somehow super productive as soon as you clock in and then you're then no longer productive as soon as you clock out, like that's crazy. We don't live in that world anymore. Yeah. I think, A, that just creates busy work and that becomes like showy work versus actual productivity. But I also put the fault on the leaders because if you are concerned that your employee is not doing work because they're at home, then I think you've hired the wrong person. Yeah. Like hire a team that you know is somewhat self-motivated, is going to get the work done, is interested and invested in the project, and is going to, you know, that the, their, their, the place that they are at is not going to determine whether or not they're going to adhere to the thing that they've said they were going to do or be reliable, et cetera. Yeah, and if you have a bad worker, that person is probably bad if they're in the office or they're at home. It doesn't make any difference. Exactly, yeah. The other thing, too, I'm now going to flip the script and say that these days, a lot of times managers don't actually know what it takes to get the job done. Totally. And they are, in fact, less qualified than the workers 
they've somehow managed their they're great maybe at politics or they, they've they're in a position where they can manage but they don't actually know they don't know how to do as well and so for that I can see how uh, uh, people working remote is frustrating for them or even causes a little bit of anxiety because if you don't know what it takes to get the work done then maybe you're like why is Joe Schmo taking forever to write an email yeah why is Joe Schmo not answering as quickly it's like well you don't know that in fact to do this thing I have to do five other things before it and three other things after it in order to actually get the work done totally these these must be very trying times for micromanagers oh, I mean yeah. can you imagine if you're a micromanager the office is a great place. It is yes. your it is your ideal home. You can walk and look over people's shoulders and yeah. say, why are you doing this? Do yeah. this instead. And now they're at home and you have no yeah. idea what they're doing. But being a micromanager is so terrible yeah. for exactly what you're describing. You yeah. can't know what everyone is doing. There is no point in knowing. As long as people, and Toto talks about this, this idea of knowing what you're trying to accomplish, of knowing what the KPIs are, that you measure success, and then knowing how to keep people motivated. I feel like if you can do those three things, then you're in great shape. Then people are doing what it takes intrinsically to be able to move the company forward. And then you as a manager, your job, you as a senior leader, your job is to just set that goal. So, Dan, during your interview with Toto, you had asked him about his upbringing and how it really motivated him to success, which I absolutely loved. And just for context for our listeners, Toto's father was diagnosed with brain cancer when Toto was eight, and then he died when Toto was 15. And they didn't have a ton of money in the household. I don't think they were destitute per se, but there was a little bit of financial struggle there. And it really played a role in, in his search for success. Let's take a listen. It is important to acknowledge that each of us um, has their history and, and all of us suffered in some kind of way. There's much worse than what I had to go through. But clearly... My situation as a boy and as a growing up teenager is that if you're if you're if you're being raised in an environment where you where you you see money and you see wealth but you don't have it, it's just right in front of your eyes every single day, and and uh, you just see the difference. And it's hum- it was humiliating for me, uh, different to when you know you're growing up in an environment where your peers are just like you, whether it is money or no money. But for me, that was a that was very hard um, when I when I was young, and um, it's certainly still a driving factor. I believe that some degree of uh, trauma or humiliation can be quite a can be quite a um, driving factor in your upbringing. But at least it was with me. But I hope I can provide an environment for my family and my children that uh, where this is not necessary, and it's. It's not a must. There's plenty of very successful people out there in their own businesses. They've had a, um, a really nice family environment when they grew up, a safe environment, and they're still happy um, and successful in, in their own way. So there is not a blueprint how it should be, but with me, it was and it, it still is um, a, a drive. I think when I look at my own career, I, I, I try to be a racing driver, but with Known with not the necessary funding um, to to make it into go karts and then into junior single seater series, it is very difficult. And I realized that it was a moment where it was important for me to understand from my later life: you need to be able to assess your own capability and you need to be brutally honest with yourself. 
am I good enough for what I want to achieve or not? And I think I could have made it into Formula One, but I saw that there's maybe a little difference between how I drove a car and all the others. And, um, and then because of a lack of sponsorship, that door closed of a driving career and another one opened in banking and then another one opened in, in venture capital in the late 90s. And so every every part of my career was important to, to bring me where I am today. I really try to encourage young people today, and I do it with my kids as well, to say, just let it pan out. But if you're doing something, then you may as well be doing it right and, and give it all you have. If that is not for you, then another door will open. So one thing I really liked was just how he was very open about being being around wealth and not having it yourself and how that was such a motivating factor for him and how that pushed him to do so well. And this idea of like coming from want can really be such a huge factor in how well people do. And I think of that a lot with, with Ginny Rometty, who had a similar story of coming from want yeah, and ended up being so successful. Ginny Rometty, the former CEO of IBM, she talked a lot about what it was like to grow up not having really anything. Her father had, had left her and her siblings and her mother, and they had to make their own way, and that really gave her the kind of spirit and, um, and, and, and challenges that she used to motivate her for the rest of her life. Yeah. And it sounds like for Toto that was also similar. Now, Toto in the interview talks a little bit about he felt like a sense of humiliation that you didn't hear from Ginny. But Toto, he was in a he was he had a different situation where he was actually pretty well off until his dad died. He he had to be pulled out of the school he was in. He grew up in a in kind of a wealthy area, and I guess the kids were really not nice to him after he lost his money. And so, it is not just it wasn't just a feeling of loss; it was a feeling of humiliation. Right. That as a kid can be so it can just shut you down, yeah, and make you so angry with the world. Yeah, it sounds like he was able to channel that into uh, doing in, in, into making sure that he was successful. You know, it's so funny because as you're talking, it reminds me of when I was in France I and mean, we had moved to France when I was ten years old and I didn't speak any French, and. I got, like, for the first month, everyone at my school was thrilled that I was American. And then that changed so quickly. Really? And me and my little sister got bullied so hard for not speaking French, for not understanding French. And I was so humiliated. But you know what that did? I doubled down so hard in learning French Ah. and in my studies and in conjugation and in dictation and all of that. And I ended up being number one in my French composition class. Wow. And it's like, it is such a motivating factor. It's like when you get humiliated, you're like, never again. Yeah. I'm I'm going to be better than all of you people who are, you know, bullying me. There you go. So this is, this is in your mind, it sounds like that entire class are the kind of people that you should have a picture of on your computer on staring computer. at all day. <laughs> right. Let me ask this question to all of our listeners. What is it that motivates you? Is there someone that you have on your computer right now or someone you're imagining in your head as you're listening to this? Let us know on LinkedIn using the hashtag thisisworking or send us your voice. Make a voice memo on your cell phone and email it to us at thisisworkingatlinkedin.com. Either way, you might hear your contributions in an upcoming episode. Please share this podcast episode with a friend and review it. It helps new listeners find us. 
If you'd like to hear the full conversation between Dan and Toto Wolf, check the show notes. We'll link to it there. This is Working is a LinkedIn editorial production. Our production team includes Sarah Storm, Stephen Valdivia, Asaf Gidron, and Lilia Briggs. Joe DeGiorgi mixes our show. Enrique Montalvo is our executive producer. Dave Pond is head of news production. Our head of original programming is Courtney Coop. I'm Nina Melendez, senior producer. And I'm Dan Roth, LinkedIn's editor-in-chief. Be well and stay curious.